One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, we are talking about being a lawyer. And honestly, the game that really portrays what being a lawyer and lawyering and loitering really does for you. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this one today. Of course, by the title, you know we're talking about Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney. I've always wanted to uh, experience that courtroom drama, Alex. I feel like I haven't gotten it. Ever since I watched my cousin Vinny as a kid, it was like all the exciting court stuff that goes down. I want to live in that action. It sounds really cool. Now I've gone and uh, I had a class in college where I had to go and sit in on an actual courtroom case, like mm-hmm. a criminal case. And it was not nearly as exciting. No twists. There has to be a twist. You have to have a twist. Otherwise, what is it? I mean, look, look. Judge Judy, Judge Joe Brown, Judge Dredd, get them out of your mind. Those, <laughs> those are for amateurs. You need Phoenix Wright on your side as your defense attorney, and you see what it really takes to defend the law. So let's talk about the game. Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney is a visual novel adventure game developed by Capcom Production Studio 4 and published by Capcom. It was released in 2001 for the Game Boy Advance in Japan and has been ported to multiple platforms. Ace Attorney began in 2000 as the brainchild of Capcom's Shu Takumi. A longtime mystery fan, Takumi came up with the concept of a detective game told through the lens of the legal system. Players would take on the role of a defense attorney, collect evidence and clues, and uncover contradictions and lies by matching evidence to testimony. Over the course of a year, he and his team assembled Gaiakuten Saiban, or Turnabout Court, and released it for the Game Boy Advance in late 2001. The game was a surprise hit and a pair of sequels quickly followed turning what was meant to be a one-off into an impromptu trilogy. Yeah, this was just a fun brainchild, you know, coming off of them working on Resident Evil and a couple other games they had. They just kind of said to them, just kind of make something you want. You know, we just need to fill a void. Just uh, put something out there. And luckily enough, it was something that really stuck. And we're still seeing today. You know, we're seeing... Uh, spinoffs and sequels and prequels and so much this Ace Attorney craze that we actually saw even more media come out about it and of it in later years. I mean, it, it somehow took the world overall by storm. And it's really neat because I think it definitely hit a void that existed in the gaming world. In a lot of ways, it's almost like a text-based puzzle game. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's something that 
you're just you're sitting there you got to put the pieces together a uh, really interesting concept and it brought you know like nancy drew i spy even like the boxcar kids it kind of brought that to life in a way of using that mystery using that spin at the end to really bring players in to an interesting story but also create memorable characters that made you want to like help this person you know go free you know or, or something along those lines to like really help you want to defend them. So let's talk about Capcom and Capcom's production studio 4 specifically. So Capcom started a subsidiary company under IRM Corporation in 1981 as Capsule Computer Co. Capcom, with the purpose of creating coin-operated video games. Their first title, Little League, was released two years later in 1983. That same year, the name of the company was changed to Capcom Co., From there, the company would start developing more coin-operated video games before releasing their first home console video game titled 1942 in 1984 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. The studio released several more titles before creating two of their more notable franchises, Street Fighter and Mega Man, both released in 1987. During this time, Capcom was establishing offices in the United States and the United Kingdom. Capcom went on to create 15 multi-million selling home video game franchises, with the best-selling franchise being Resident Evil, introduced in 1996. Capcom's highest-grossing video game is its fighting game, as I had said, Street Fighter 2, so doubling it up, not the 1, but the 2, in 1991, largely driven by its success in arcades. So again, remember that on that time, that was when Street Fighter was like the name for fighting games, and you had other ones coming about, like Mortal Kombat, that were trying to take that crown away and still to this day i mean street fighter players they've got the little home uh joysticks now that they use Mm -hmm. very dedicated street fighter fandom they went on i mean there's there's mega man as well i think capcom just has created so many big iconic titles that really appealed to a mainstream audience for them to then put their hands into an ace attorney title really interesting So, until the late 1990s, Capcom game development was handled by three teams dubbed planning rooms, with the first, second, and third rooms led by Takora Fujiwara, Takashi Nishiyama, and Yoshiki Okamoto, respectively. The studio was founded around 1999 as one of a number of semi-autonomous development studios. The studio's first projects were Shu Takumi and Shinji Mikami's Dino Crisis, and Kazuhiro Aoyama's Biohazard 1.9, as well as Hideki Kamiyama's Biohazard 3 for the PlayStation, and Hiroki Kato's Biohazard Code Veronica for the Dreamcast. So as we get to know those, we know that that's tie-in games for Resident Evil, as we get to, you know, Biohazard being one of them. And it's all this kind of universe that's created around it. And one of those names, notably that we have heard before, Shu Takumi, uh, you know, coming off of, of Dino Crisis is going to then kind of get his own way. So with Kamiya's game being the most expensive, Capcom decided it was better to move development to the new PlayStation 2 console to avoid it underselling on an outdated console. With this delay, the game was retitled as Biohazard 4 in mid-1999. Shinji Mikami was highly critical of the corporate decision and threatened to quit seeing it as unworthy of the number and liable to alienate fans if they were to take note of the drop in quality. Not long after, the considerable differences in Biohazard 4's gameplay style got the attention of Mikami, 
who persuaded the team that it should be a new IP, being retitled Devil May Cry, and its plot altered to remove references to the Resident Evil franchise. The first new development of the millennium was Shu Takumi's Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, which entered production in mid-2006 months after Dino Crisis 2 release, after persuasion with Mikami, who considered the premise to be ridiculous. So yeah, so this was the thing of like, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to create something outside of Resident Evil with Capcom Studio 4 kind of being mainly focused on that. And they're like, I don't know, man, I guess try it. We'll just see what comes about. Like, why not? I guess I'll give you a shot. So in 2000, after Takumi had finished his work on Dino Crisis 2, his boss, you know, Shinji Mikami, gave him six months to create any type of game he wanted. Takumi had originally joined Capcom wanting to make mystery and adventure games and felt this was a big chance to make his mark as a creator. Takumi said that he initially received criticism for Ace Attorney's concept for its relation to law and a perceived requirement of legal knowledge. But he said that the main point of Ace Attorney was the, quote, fun from solving puzzles and calling witnesses out and their lies and evidence. And that's what you do. And, and I can see that argument of like, why do you want to make a lawyer game? Only lawyers are going to want to play this. Like, that like, makes no sense. And at first, the game was planned to be released for the Game Boy Color. But after the development team saw the Game Boy Advance system screen and footage of Mega Man Battle Network, Takumi felt it would be perfect for Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. The game was designed to be simple, as Takumi wanted it to be easy enough for even his mother to play. As it was less common at the time to use professional voice actors, the development team provided the game's voice clips. Each staff member recorded every sample needed for the game, and then the best ones were used. Takumi used his privilege as the director to cast himself as Phoenix. However, while Sugimori voiced Von Karma and Iwotomo voiced Edgeworth. The game was originally going to be a detective game, with Phoenix as a private investigator who finds a body at his client's office and is arrested. As the lawyer who is assigned to his case is useless, Phoenix takes up his own defense. It was decided early during development to refer to the game as Servaban Attorney Detective Naruhuru-kun, with Servaban being a mixture of survival and the Japanese word saiban, or court or trial. Among other names considered were Boogie Woogie Innocence and Bingo Bango. <laughs> with bingo referring to answering correctly <laughs> and bango being Japanese for legal representation. I'm very upset that we're not doing a bingo bango episode right now. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Or a boogie woogie innocence. Your Honor, I am boogie woogie innocent. Takumi soon realized that finding and taking apart contradictions was not related to detective work. When it came to the game's environment, he felt the main setting of the game should be courtrooms. At one point, the game was in danger of being canceled when two staff members left the company, but Takumi's division leader and Inaba enlisted a member of the Resident Evil development team to help them part-time. Takumi cited Japanese mystery author Itagawa Ranpo as an inspiration, particularly The Psychological Test, a short story which involves a crime that, quote, unravels due to the criminal's contradictory testimony. It had a big impact on him and was a major influence on the game. He was also inspired by stories from another Japanese author, Shinichi Hoshi, stating that he was pursuing his element of surprise and unexpectedness. So yeah, so drawing on some mystery authors that he knew to kind of get this going. You know, it, it seems like to me like he grew up with this. Like this was something he loved. He loved like the mystery of it, those mystery novels. And he wanted to bring this to the gaming sphere. 
And so drawing on those and drawing those ideas of, you know, pointing out contradictory statements like, whoa, 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 yesterday you said you were here. This receipt shows that you weren't. And that's kind of what really the game started to be built around. And it's definitely very cool. It seems like a very big passion project for him. Not mm-hmm. only was he doing all this research based on, you know, mystery authors to cast yourself in the role of Phoenix. I understand, you know, maybe it's a little bit of, hey, this is my game and I'm going to to do this. But to be willing to, I think, have the mentality of only I really know how this main character needs to be developed. So it's best in my hands. You could tell that he cared a lot about Ace Attorney. Yes. And, and we'll see that as we start to get into more of the writing. So Takumi felt the best way to write a mystery with a good climax is to reveal various clues, then pull them together into one conclusion and not have multiple possible endings. He said the biggest challenge with this is making the gameplay and story work together. The goal is to make the player feel they have driven the story for themselves with their own choices, even though the game is linear. While writing the episodes, Takumi ranked the importance of each. The first episode was the most important to make sure the player likes the game. The second episode was the second most important to solidify the player's interest. And the finale was the third most important, you know, tying it all together and giving a very satisfying end to it all. In general, each scenario was finished before anything else was done. Then characters were designed based on the scenarios and Takumi adjusted the dialogue as needed to make sure it fit in the designs. At this point, the scenes that were to have specific cut-in illustrations made for them were decided. Takumi drew rough sketches of them and also drew the storyboards for the episode's openings, which consisted of a series of detailed drawings showing what was happening. So again, he's taking this on himself, doing the entire storyboard, showing like, this is how I want the layout to be. This is the mystery that we're going to try and solve. How do all these characters fit into that? In Takumi's first draft of the story, the second episode, Turnabout Sisters, was actually the first episode of the game. The development team decided because of its length, Among other factors, it did not work well easing players into the game. As a result, he wrote a shorter episode, the first turnabout, which was used as the game's first episode. He wanted players to focus on the thrill of nailing the culprit, especially for that first episode. For this reason, the culprit in the first episode is shown in its opening and you actually can see who it is. So you actually know who it is and you're trying to like, I know who it is at home. (laughs) So let me try and figure out who it, like, like, how can I, you know, pin it on him. Right. And this was the most direct way that Takumi thought he could do it. And Takumi really said, most of all, it's just a challenge to write this episode. Like, how can I get players involved in a short story where they already know the ending because they've seen it, but how do we wrap it up to make Phoenix know? And playing that episode, I can kind of understand where you're like, I know it's him. That's his fingerprints right there, but how do I prove that's his fingerprints without evidence on it? In addition to keeping the episode short, he had to set up the world of Ace Attorney and the type of characters players would meet. The third episode was written for the sake of the character Miles Edgeworth, and the theme of the fourth episode was rekindling the relationship. In it, Takumi tried to portray an intensely strong friendship between Phoenix and Edgeworth. He did wonder if that was what people got from it, saying that some people interpreted the bond between Phoenix and Edgeworth as intensely passionate Mm. because of these two episodes takumi considered edgeworth to be the game's protagonist in a way the classroom trial in the game's fourth episode is based on real events when takumi was in second grade 
he had found a five yen coin and put it in his pocket. His teacher accused him of stealing it from another student and made him apologize to her. And that's pretty much what will happen in that episode that we'll talk about is it's kind of a flashback and this lunch money was missing and they blame Phoenix for it. And then Edgeworth is the one to come and like call the first objection back when they were kids and be like, he didn't steal it. That's awesome. He's innocent until proven guilty. So kind of tied that in, which is pretty cool. See where, yeah, just a just a helpful narrative to say this is kind of the way he has always been. Mm-hmm. Takumi spent little time writing a backstory for Phoenix before writing the game story and instead made up dialogue and developed Phoenix's personality as he went along. He said Phoenix is himself in everything but name, with dialogue similar to what Takumi would have said in each situation in the games. He attributed this to being a first-time writer who did not think about developing characterization before writing the story. And I think that's very common with first-time writers. Mm-hmm. They use certain tropes and things that maybe seem a little bit more generic and obvious, but I think with him having the passion for this game, it still works. So not only that, Takumi did not write a backstory for Dick Gumshoe either. His character and personality just, quote, fell into place after Takumi decided the character would end his sentences with pal. Other aspects of the character came about organically as he wrote the story. Takumi came up with the partner character Maya, thinking it would be more fun for players to have another character with them, providing advice rather than investigating on their own. Originally, she was going to be a lawyer in training, preparing to take the bar exam. Larry Butts, the game's first defendant, was particularly difficult for Takumi to write, with him having to rewrite the character several times. Originally, he was going to be an average Joe type of character who only appeared in the game's fourth episode. After his inclusion in the first episode, however, Sukane and Iwamoto told Takumi to give the character, quote, some oomph. Takumi then wrote him as a prickly tough guy who had the habit of telling people he was going to kill them. Some of the higher-ups at Capcom did not like this, so Takumi changed him to a character who laments his lot in life, saying, I'm going to die, or that the situation is killing him. So yeah, so going from a serial killer to just a very sad person. (laughs) The third episode's culprit was originally going to be male, until Sukane pointed out that all the game's villains were men. The development team debated what to do with the now-female character. Some staff members thought it would be odd to have a female character be the director of an action show, and some wondered what to do with the director role if she could not fill it. In the end, Takumi changed the scriptwriter character to a director and made the culprit a, quote, strong, glamorous, fashionable, and cool-headed producer. Again, going back to the idea of adapting the story, adapting the characters as need be, and just making things fit in. And I get the idea what they're trying to say is they didn't want this, like, you know, glamorous, basically model-esque character to be the director of, like, basically a Power Rangers is kind of what it is, like this, like, fighting Power Rangers show. So she became the producer, the kind of purse bag of everything, where the writer, who's this, like, creepy dude, becomes (laughs) kind of the director of the whole series. So the localization of the game. So that's when you take a game, you know, that's in Japanese, that's set in Japanese standards, environments, jokes, things like that, and you transfer it to another location. So in, in this term being the Western world and specifically for the United States. So the localization of the game was outsourced to Bound Global and handled by writer Alexander O. Smith, who was unfamiliar with the Ace Attorney series before working on it, and also included editor Steve Anderson. While the Japanese version of the game takes place in Japan, the localized version is set in the United States. 
Normally, the setting would be left vague, while cultural differences the target audience would not understand would be adapted. Because one of the episodes involves time zones, however, they had to specify where the game takes place and chose the United States without thinking a lot about it. This became an issue in later games, where the Japanese setting was a bit more obvious. Bound Global staff handled all of the voice roles in the localized version. Takumi had wanted to do the English voice for Phoenix as well, but Ben Judd handled that. Smith faced several problems related to the game's use of puns. In the Japanese version, each character has a name that relies on Japanese wordplay. While Smith and Anderson had a lot of freedom when it came to localizing the names of minor characters, they had to discuss the names of the main cast with Capcom. Smith came up with a list of first and last names for Phoenix. The first suggestion was Roger Wright. And Smith felt that Wright had to be the character's surname because Phoenix's surname in the Japanese version, Narahodu, means I see or I understand, which was used many times in the game's text as, as a joke, you know, kind of being on the note that I am right, I understand what's going on, so it made sense to keep it. The reason for the suggested first name Roger was in alliteration, and Roger was a good source for jokes for them. A staff member of the development team, however, thought that Roger Wright was too similar to Roger Rabbit, and other suggestions for first names included Pierce, Xavier, Marcus, and Zane. In the end, Phoenix was chosen for its heroic sound. I definitely think there is enough of a difference between Roger Wright and Roger Rabbit where they could have stuck with Roger Wright, but Phoenix Wright also rolls off the tongue pretty well. Yeah, and it's definitely a name that sticks. Roger Wright sounds just like the most generic detective name you could kind of think of, too. Yeah. Where it just... It would just like go, it would just kind of go by the wayside, in my opinion. But Phoenix Wright is like this name that just sticks out and it worked for him. As the game's dialogue consists of a lot of wordplay and misunderstandings, Smith would analyze scenes before writing them. He would determine what the scenes were trying to accomplish and where their beats were. After he had the structure of a scene in his head, he would write it. At times, he was able to make use of the original Japanese dialogue, but most of the time, he had to come up with new ideas himself. At several points, the English wordplay was inspired by the wordplay in the Japanese version. At others, it was not possible to have wordplay in the same places as in the Japanese version, so Smith would change the structure of the scene slightly. Sometimes Smith came up with a joke or funny line and changed the scene to make that joke work. About half the jokes were rewritten based on the characters present in the scene, rather than using translations of the Japanese jokes. Which, again, makes sense. Humor is different everywhere, and different words mean different things, or there's, like, certain phrases in other languages. I, I mean, you know, learning this in, in high school, especially when we learned, like, different languages, you translate words directly, and it makes no sense or just sounds odd. So you have to, like, figure out a way to localize that and get the same idea across. Definitely was one of those things in high school where put something off to the last minute thinking, I'll just pop it into Google Translate, and you realize yep. what a huge mistake you've made. I mean, yep. localization teams are so, so important to how these games come across, and it's really only been recently that I started realizing that. I had looked into some Pokemon content, and you think about Pokemon like Hitmonchan and Hitmonlee that are named after Jackie Chan and, and Bruce Lee. And they were meant to be recognizable to the American audience, where they have totally different names based on famous fighters from different regions across the world. Yep. So these localization teams really do influence these games in a way that I think is sometimes overlooked, or at least 
I used to overlook this a lot. And even going to Pokemon, I mean, look at all the Pokemon names. They all had to be brought over because in a lot of the Japanese, it works the same way a lot of the at least English ones work, where it is a play on words with what that Pokemon is. But you have to localize that in a way that makes sense to your audience and also plays on a good alliteration of how that character's name is built. And then not only that, there's so many limitations with what you can actually fit into the game. Obviously, it's gotten a little bit easier now, but there are certain parameters that they have to meet while making it make sense to these other markets. And so it's definitely a very hard, I think, influential, important job. And we're seeing it. I mean, the game's taken off. I mean, we've got some new sequels on sequels even coming out today it's just crazy how much this game has influenced it even being a somewhat underground hit that is still doing really well to a made audience it's they, they did really well with the localization have continued to do well with it so let's jump over real quick to a little bit of the marketing now marketing in japan was a little more heavy at least as far as i found than in the u.s market especially within tv commercials in the japanese market a commercial showing a man with a crosshair on his hair causes it to fly off, basically a toupee. This is followed by a few clips of the Game Boy Advance version of the game, stating that the price at 4,800 yen, and then followed by the man shocked that his hair flew off. This is pinnacle Japanese commercial, but not only that, pinnacle Nintendo and just Game Boy commercials. Like, even in US versions of it, there's just oddities. So, like, and me... <laughs> not knowing Japanese, all it was is a man's hair flew off, they played some clips, and then he was shocked. So, great times for me to watch like, those. I'm going to get this game for that cheap? What? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Or maybe it was a lot. I don't actually know. That's probably on point. Maybe? Who knows? Another Japanese commercial features a voiceover describing the game uh, going over a Game Boy Advance screen with various scenes from the games playing out in the back. So it's it's going to be very similar to the American version we see, which is just a full Game Boy screen setup. So it shows Game Boy Advance on the bottom, going through different scenes, kind of describing who you are as Phoenix Wright and what you're going to do. And then finally, as far as the U.S. market goes, the E3 2005 trailer shows players what they had in store for the DS version of Ace Attorney. This version of the trailer dives into the mind of Phoenix Wright and states, the law has never been this fun. Sold. Exactly, right there. So. <laughs> TV spots for it, for sure. E3 spots. I mean, we had some print ads and other things that showed it, like a Nintendo Power and a couple others that were around, but those are your kind of main channels for it. Again, this wasn't a mainline Resident Evil one that Capcom Production Studio 4 typically worked on, very similar to how Devil May Cry came about. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a huge effort outside of, I guess, their just traditional way they marketed stuff. No parties at Microsoft, no lions, no tigers or bears, oh mine. But just your traditional TV commercials, see how it goes. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive 
as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So all that's really cool. Obviously, some interesting marketing for this game. Very Japanese-centric stuff. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and move forward. Let's talk about the gameplay. Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney is a visual novel adventure game where the player takes the role of Phoenix Wright, a rookie defense attorney, and attempts to defend their clients in five cases. These cases are played in a specific order. After finishing them, the player can replay them in any order. Each case begins with an opening cinematic cutscene showing a murder, and shortly thereafter, the player is given the job of defending the prime suspect in the case. The gameplay is divided into two sections, investigations and courtroom trials. During investigations, which usually take place before or between trial sessions, the player gathers information and evidence by talking to characters such as their client, witnesses, and the police. The player can move a cursor to examine various things in the environment. By using a menu, the player can move to different locations, examine evidence, and present evidence to other characters. By showing certain pieces of evidence to some witnesses, the player can access new information. In the game's fifth case, created for the DS version and used in all subsequent releases, the player is able to examine evidence more closely, rotating it to view it from all sides and zooming in or out on it using touchscreen controls. They are also able to move a cursor to investigate specific parts of the evidence. The fifth case also features forensic tests the player can use at crime scenes to find clues. The player can spray luminol by tapping areas they want to examine on the touchscreen, allowing them to see otherwise invisible blood stains. They can touch the touchscreen to apply aluminum flake powder to search for fingerprints. After applying it, they can blow into the microphone to reveal the prints. Once the player has gathered enough evidence, the investigation section ends. So yeah, this was definitely around the era of like, we put a microphone in it. Let's have games where people just blow. That's about it. Because WarioWare had some stuff like that. Mario had some stuff like that. And it's like, that's what we need it for. <laughs> During the courtroom trials, the player aims to prove their client's innocence. To do so, they cross-examine witnesses. During these cross-examinations, the player aims to uncover lies and inconsistencies in the witness's testimony. They are able to go back and forth between the different statements in the testimony and can press the witness for more details about a statement. When the player finds an inconsistency, they can present a piece of evidence that contradicts the statement, usually with that hold it or, you know, other various yellings of objection. In the Nintendo DS version, the player can choose to press and present by using vocal commands. In the Wii version, players have the option to present evidence by swinging the Wiimote. You just slap it at them. At certain points, the player has to answer questions from the judge, the witnesses, or the prosecutor through a multiple-choice answer section or by presenting evidence that supports Wright's claims. A number of exclamation marks are shown on the screen. If a player presents an incorrect piece of evidence, one of them disappears. If they all disappear, the client is found guilty and the player must restart that entire section. When the player solves the case, they unlock a new one to play. In newer versions, those exclamation points are just like little life bars, and basically the judge is just like, Phoenix, what are you talking about? That's wrong. And then like, you lose it, and you're like, I got four more tries. And so it's a, it's a pretty interesting overall gameplay concept. Having that microphone um, on the DS version, Nintendo stuck with that for so long. They've been trying yeah. to get the microphone thing to work forever. And it just, 
it never really works all that well. I, I didn't, of course, there were rumors I remember around certain games, like in Pokemon, if you said something like as you threw it, you'd have a better chance of catching the Pokemon. Mm-hmm. You know, all these weird things that they tried to incorporate that maybe were true, maybe weren't. And this one, using the vocal commands to object or whatever it was that you were doing. Interesting thought. I'm glad that they moved away from it. The Wii Remote one sounds a lot more fun. Yeah, and like using motion controls with it. Because, I mean, what are you doing? Sit on a train just screaming objection? You're like, like <laughs> looking at what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, it's just my Ace Attorney game. It's no big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that as well. So the main characters of the game, we have Phoenix Wright, a rookie defense attorney who is the main character and playable protagonist of the game. One staff member suggested that Phoenix should be a hamster. And while this didn't happen, this early version of Phoenix did have a pet hamster. Basically, Hamtaro Court Edition (laughs) would not be that fun. That's definitely got to be Harvey Birdman, attorney at law inspired. Oh, absolutely. So then there was Maya Faye Wright's second client and Maya's younger sister. After the events of Turnabout Sisters, she becomes his defense aide. She is a spirit medium in training who is able to channel Maya after her death in Turnabout Sisters. Is Miles Edgeworth, the main antagonist for most of the game. He prosecutes Wright in Turnabout Sisters, Turnabout Samurai, and Rise from the Ashes. He is also Wright's client in Turnabout Goodbyes. Then there's Maya Faye, Wright's mentor and acts as his defense counsel during the first Turnabout. Despite being murdered in Turnabout Sisters, she continues to help Wright out of tight spots via the channeling abilities of her younger sister, Maya. So yeah, so to clear that up, both Mayas spelled differently. We have Dick Gumshoe, the bumbling detective in charge of the cases. Larry Butts, a childhood friend of Wright and his first client. Winston Payne, the prosecutor in the first turnabout. The nameless judge presides over all of Wright's trials in the game. Manfred von Karma, the prosecutor and antagonist in turnabout goodbyes. And Emma Skye, Wright's defensive aide in Rise from the Ashes. She aspires to be a forensic investigator someday and loves forensic investigation. She introduces and explains the final case's DS-exclusive investigative techniques. So yeah, so in the finale, a little spoiler, but in the finale, uh, Maya leaves Phoenix to go pursue her own thing. So in the fifth episode, they had to write a new character in to kind of be the new aide for you. So let's jump to the plot. Now, spoiler alert, if you want to play this game or have any inkling of it, pause here and go play through a couple of these because this will reveal... Who done it for each of these episodes? So the plot. Phoenix Wright, a newly hired defense attorney at the Fay and Co. law firm, agrees to represent his childhood friend Larry Butts, who has been charged with the murder of his girlfriend, Cinny Stone. With the help of his boss and mentor, Maya Fay, Phoenix proves that Frank Sowett, the prosecutor's star witness, is the real murderer. Ooh. So that's that first case where like we actually see who did it, who who done it, who did it. Mm. who diddly dotted did, did, did it <laughs> and and we kind of track all the clues back to him shortly thereafter so like in the ending cutscene, maya is killed in her office so older sister her younger sister maya as well m-a-y-a is arrested after the police find her name on a note left by maya phoenix takes the case facing off against miles edgeworth a skilled prosecutor phoenix knows from childhood phoenix manages to identify red white a professional blackmailer, as the real killer, only to find himself charged with the killing instead. Representing himself, he exposes White in court and gets justice for Maya. In gratitude, 
Younger Maya becomes Phoenix's assistant. His reputation established, Phoenix takes on another case, this time defending Will Powers, the lead actor in the Steel Samurai Children's TV show, against accusers that he killed his co-star, Jack Hammer. It is revealed that D. Vasquez, the show's producer, committed the murder in self-defense after Hammer tried to kill her and frame Powers for her death. On Christmas, Edgeworth is arrested for the murder of attorney Robert Hammond. After relenting for Phoenix's help after an initial refusal, Wright faces Edgeworth's mentor, Manfred von Karma, who has not lost a single case in his 40-year career. Phoenix discovers that former bailiff Yanni Yogi shot Hammond while von Karma provided Yogi with the gun. Years earlier, Edgeworth's father Gregory ruined von Karma's spotless record when he convinced a judge to penalize Karma for misconduct. Unable to deal with such a blemish on his legacy, Karma murdered Gregory in cold blood, leaving Miles to believe he himself was responsible, while Yogi was publicly blamed and convinced by Hammond, his attorney, to fake insanity which got him acquitted of all charges, making the case unsolved till that very day. After Von Karma suffers a breakdown in court and confesses to the cover-up and for murdering Gregory, Edgeworth is set free. Following the trial, Phoenix explains that Edgeworth motivated him to become an attorney after he defended Phoenix from a false theft accusation as children. However, Edgeworth decided to become Von Karma's pupil following his father's murder after being motivated by his hatred of criminals. After the case, it was revealed that Larry was the true culprit of the theft. Nevertheless, Edgeworth decides to rethink whether or not he should resume his previous duties. Meanwhile, Maya decides to return to her home village to finish her spirit medium training. This was definitely a long one. You know, you go through multiple different witnesses about, oh, no, we think that Edgeworth shot this guy in a boat with this, this everything, all this stuff. It's so cool. Like the way that they put this evidence together and build it out. And it really tests you to be like, okay, from what everyone has said, this piece of evidence should be contradictory to it. So that's a definitely long one. And that's the wrap-up to the main game. In a fifth and final case added for the Nintendo DS and subsequent releases, Phoenix is hired by teenager Emma Skye to defend her sister Lana, the head of the prosecutor's office. Skye is accused of murdering Detective Bruce Goodman, who was found in the trunk of Edgeworth's car. Together with Emma, Phoenix traces the origins of the murder to an incident two years prior, when a serial killer named Joe Dark allegedly murdered prosecutor Neil Marshall while trying to escape custody, Damon Gott, the chief of police, accidentally admits that he murdered Marshall and framed Emma for the crime in order to blackmail Lana into doing his bidding, and confesses to killing Goodman after he requested that the case be reopened. Though Lana is cleared of murder charges, she agrees to resign her post to face judgment for protecting Gant. With Emma being sent to Europe to continue training as a forensic investigator, Phoenix looks forward to continuing his career defending. The Innocent. So again, they added the fifth episode more so as a selling point for the DS. Because they already wrapped it up in those four episodes. Now it's like, uh, all new characters for one of these episodes. And also there's new things. But it definitely sets it up for these subsequent games and more elements that can be used, such as examining evidence closer, turning it, speaking, and adding to it, especially for the first trilogy of games. Absolutely. And you can tell the fifth one is sort of like a tack on thing and and cool i mean extra content for subsequent releases uh, very very common with a lot of video games that get ported Mm -hmm. over into different mediums and 
I think it's fine. Like this one in particular doesn't seem to be very impactful on the story. If you had played those first four episodes, I think that you had a nice little wrap up and yeah, having the little bonus content is cool, but glad that they didn't make it anything too significant. Yeah, that they didn't like retcon the story and be like, JK, Maya actually didn't leave. Her train got canceled and she stayed for one more murder. (laughs) You know, they added up to be this new thing. And we see that in the second and third one, a little bit more leeway in who the characters are, getting Phoenix involved with more people. So we will see that in subsequent ones, especially with the, the newer ones, even ones where like you play as Edgeworth, there's other stuff that comes about in the game. So after all this gameplay, obviously you have episodes written and they took some episodes and they actually came up with an idea for a television series for Ace Attorney. Ace Attorney's anime adaptation was first announced during a presentation at the 2015 Tokyo Game Show. Production of the series was handled by A1 Pictures, who had previously produced the animated cutscenes in the sixth main Ace Attorney game, Spirit of Justice, and was directed by Ayumu Watanabe, with series composition by Atsuhiro Tamioka and character design by Keiko Oda and Koji Watanabe. The first season adapts the first two video games in the franchise, Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, and Justice for All, alongside an original episode through the case's Rise from the Ashes, added to the DS release of the former game, and The Lost Turnabout, the opening case of the latter, are omitted from the series. Ace Attorney creator Shu Takumi also acted as a script supervisor for the series. The anime began airing on NNS, or Nippon Television Network System, across Japan from April 2nd, 2016. The series was simulcast by Crunchyroll, with multiple subtitle tracks featuring both the original Japanese names and localized English names. Funimation distributed the series in North America and released the first Blu-ray and DVD set on January 23rd, 2018. I have a Funimation subscription. I should check this out. Yeah, and, and again, it's, it's so odd that... This game that was produced in the early, early 2000s, adapted later, and now they're saying like, yeah, you know what? 2018, let's, let's do the show. A second season by Cloverworks adapts the third game in the franchise, Trials and Tribulations, as well as The Lost Turnabout, the only remaining case from the original games that was not adapted in the first season, alongside several original stories. The season aired from October 6, 2018, through March 30th, 2019, with many of the original production staff retained and Takumi returning as a collaborator. A one-hour special aired on January 19th, 2019. Funimation produced an English dub as it aired. So definitely really cool that they took this visual novel and, you know, animated it, basically. You know, you already had the stories written. They're long. They have a really cool turn. Why not get it to the people who don't just want the cutscenes to play through? You're getting this really cool anime with it. So I'm, I'm definitely glad to see it. And, and there's even more with that because we also have an Ace Attorney film. There was a 2012 Japanese legal comedy drama film directed by Takashi Miike and based on the Capcom video game Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. In the film, rookie defense attorney Phoenix Wright takes on a series of court cases culminating in one that pits him against Manfred von Karma a prosecutor who has remained undefeated through his 40-year career, so taking on the whole main game minus the fifth bonus episode. It made its premiere at the International Film Festival Rotterdam on February 1st, 2012, and was released in Japanese cinemas on February 11th, 2012. The U.S. premiere was made at the Hawaii International Film Festival in April of 2012, so all kind of like making the rounds that year. Mike has stated that there are plans for an international release with both dubbing and subtitles available for each specific region. 
and we have yet to see it. The music for Ace Attorney was composed by Koji Endo, known for scoring other films by Takashi Miike. For the soundtrack, Endo chose to use various themes by Matsakusu Sigamore from the original video game and rearranged them for an ensemble consisting of a string orchestra, an oboe, a clarinet, two French horns, a trumpet, and a choir. Additional background music was also newly composed, with the soundtrack later being released on CD to tie in with the movie. The film's theme song, 2012 Spark, was composed and performed by the Japanese male rock group Porno Graffiti. What a name. What a name. (laughs) The movie earned over $1.5 million in its opening weekend at the Japanese box office, where it grossed 540 million yen, or about $6.77 million, during its theatrical run. So I would say overall, pretty successful. I mean, you're making some millions off it. Absolutely. That's a, that's a pretty solid, especially for a, yeah, an animated film based on, off of a video game. That's, I think that's a big deal, and even bigger for porno graffiti. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So in addition to the TV show, the film, they actually expanded into manga. The Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney manga is a manga series based on the Ace Attorney video games and distributed in the United States by Koden Shah Comics. It was written by Kenji Kuroda and illustrated by Kazuo Mikawa and ran for a total of five volumes, with the first volume being originally published in Japan on April 6, 2007. Kodansha Comics released an English translation of the first volume in 2011 and has currently released all five volumes in the United States. Unlike the Del Rey manga, the Kodansha Comics manga is written and illustrated by one team and told more in the style of the games, an investigation of a crime followed by a trial. Unlike the games, however, there is only one investigation and one trial for each case. So yeah, some of the games, there might be like, oh, we need more evidence. This person might be innocent or guilty. Let's pause and come back tomorrow. This just focused on like combining all that together and just doing the one investigation and the one trial to end each volume. And it probably makes more sense for a manga setting to not overcomplicate it, to have it be just nice, concise volumes. Yes, and to you know, have, have a nice start, apex, and end to the story. I mean, that's kind of what you need for it to make sense and just to be interesting. All right, so let's take it down to the music. The music is actually, you know, I sent you some of this, Derek. It's really expressive especially when we get the DS remake and they added just a bit more of rescoring to it. Um, Some of it sounds like Pokemon. Some of it sounds just like some other Nintendo stuff out there, but it's all really impactful and it works for the scenes that it's put in. So the Gayukuten Saiban Yamigeru Gayakuten, or Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, original soundtrack was composed by Masakazu Sugimori. And despite not being well-known outside of the Ace Attorney series, Sugimori is loved by the Ace Attorney community for his non-flashy approach to music writing. Because the original version of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney was created for the Game Boy Advance, there were spatial limitations for the soundtrack due to the GBA's tiny speakers and memory size. This resulted in the game requiring minimal instrumentation and simple melodies, both characteristics of traditional chiptune music at the time of Ace Attorney's release. Despite the limitations, Sugimori still wanted to create a soundtrack that would accompany the gameplay and add to the game's suspenseful yet upbeat atmosphere. And from what I've listened to this, um, for this soundtrack, I think he does a really good job with the layering. You know, like they said, non-flashy approach, I think is a good way to describe it. But still, there's enough there to provide some energy and suspense when it needs it. Mm-hmm. Careful work was put in around much of the game's harmonies 
allowing the music to sound more dense and full. Through a more harmonically rich approach rather than melodic, Sugimura was able to create drastically different sounding tracks without taking up too much memory space. Writer Kirk Hamilton stated during a review of the game on Kotaku.com, quote, And as much as I love the artwork and goofy stories, the thing I love most about the Ace Attorney games is Masakazu Sugimori's delightful music. I can think of a few video game series whose music is so indirectly funny with so much boundless energy. When ported over to the DS, the Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney original soundtrack was reworked, with the music of Sugimori being arranged by Akami Kimura to be more expansive. When the soundtrack released, the Kimura version of the music was hailed as cleaner and more crisp than that of the GBA. RateYourMusic.com would even say of Sugimori's fully orchestrated music, quote, His ability to craft so many memorable melodies from such limited resources is unparalleled, and I hope he gets his Wikipedia page and more recognition soon, end quote. However, not all fans were happy with the new sound of the DS soundtrack. Many were quick to criticize the album as not being a good standalone album to listen to. Some also speculated that the several original tracks Kimura added to the soundtrack fell flat compared to the original compositions of Sugimori. The DS version of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney released on November 30th, 2005 through Solopeter Music, good old Solopeter, containing 34 tracks for a total of 60 minutes and 46 seconds. Numerous live adaptations of Ace Attorney's catchy music have also been arranged by fans following the release of other games in the series. Some of the most popular include Gayukuten Meets Orchestra, an album of orchestral arrangements of the series' first three installments, Gayukuten Meets Jazz Soul, a soundtrack album of jazz-arranged music for the first three games, and Gayukuten Saiban 15th Anniversary Orchestra Concert Album, a 13-track orchestral album performed by the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra to celebrate the 15th anniversary of the series' release on May 6th, 2017. So, even just looking through the music, how wide-reaching this series has become. Like, you have the, the Japanese Philharmonic, basically, jumping in to play this track. Like, that shows you just how impactful that is. It's very interesting to me how these originally chiptune soundtracks have grown and can be, you know, even though they are so simple, they can still be played by a Philharmonic orchestra. I mean, I think that really goes to show that even though these songs were relatively simple and they were limited by the size that they were able to use, they were still able to create things that were incredibly impactful. And that's what, I mean, look at Pokemon. Look at Pokemon from the early years of just the Game Boy and, and how that has evolved over time, but there's still that melody under all of it that has remained the same. And, you know, Nintendo especially and Capcom and all these others that created around that time made do. And it's stuck around. I mean, it's become cultural phenomena for a lot of those games. The original version of the game was released for the Game Boy Advance in Japan on October 12, 2001. The Nintendo DS port, which was titled Gaiakuten Saiben, Yomagira Gaiakuten, or Turnabout Trial Revived Turnabout, was released in Japan on September 15, 2005, and included a new episode and an English language option. The hope was that the English language option would be a selling point in Japan and that Japanese people studying English would play the game. North American and European releases followed on October 11, 2005 and March 31, 2006, respectively. A PC port of the Game Boy Advance version, developed by Diletto, was released in Japan in an episodic format, beginning on March 18, 2008, 
Yamagira Gaikuten was later released on Wii via WiiWare in Japan on December 15, 2009, in North America on January 11, 2010, and in Europe on January 15, 2010. The fifth episode was released separately on WiiWare on March 16, 2010, in Japan, in May 2010, in Europe, and on May 24, 2010, in North America. An iOS version of Yamagira Gaikuten was released in Japan on December 21st, 2009, and in the West on May 24th, 2010. It's basically the Skyrim of Ace Attorney. <laughs> it was released on every platform, everywhere, over different versions. And we finally saw a high-definition version of the first three Ace Attorney games, Ace Attorney Phoenix Wright Trilogy HD, released for iOS and Android in Japan on February 7th, 2012, and for iOS in the West, May 30th, 2013. Another collection of the first three games, Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Trilogy, was released for the Nintendo DS, for the PlayStation 4, for the Nintendo Switch, and Xbox One uh, early 2014 through 2019 internationally, with Windows receiving a version as well. So 2019 is really where we saw that spark, the sparks fly for it once it became a console game. Because the DS uh, saw it early in 2014. You had your DS players probably play it, but like people who didn't have that handheld, it was just a handheld game. And then when it finally came to Steam, to Switch, Xbox, PlayStation, that's when it took off. And I think that's when the fandom renewed. And we'll see that in the general reactions coming up. So moving on to that general reception, the Game Boy Advance version was the 163rd best-selling video game of the year in Japan in 2001, with 62,169 copies sold. Another 37,143 copies of the budget price Game Boy Advance re-release were sold in Japan in 2003 making it the country's 277th best-selling game of the year. So not too much, really. Numbers, they're there. <laughs> like, that's not too hard to hit those numbers. So it was popular-ish, I would say. Yeah, definitely not top of the charts, groundbreaking. And I remember this game sitting on the shelves and just kind of thinking like, oh, okay, um, yeah, I'm not really a hardcore handheld player. And I think sometimes those things can really affect like you were saying it just the ability to bring that to consoles later on i think was much more important the nintendo ds version was the 127th best-selling game of the year in japan in 2005 with 101,902 copies sold between 2006 and 2011 the game sold an additional 419,000 and then some copies dropping from the 133rd to the 650th best-selling game during that period so you do see the drop and, and see kind of people were interested in it at first, but as time went on, it's kind of lost a little bit of the magic. Yeah, and, and I included these stats. Again, they're not insane, but I wanted to bring them up as to why or how this became a cultural phenomenon. It wasn't a Pokemon. It wasn't a Legend of Zelda. It was just a kind of middle-of-the-run game from Capcom that was a handheld game. And yet we're still seeing it played in the Philharmonic. We're seeing these multiple soundtracks played and so many spinoff games still selling today. Demand for the North American release of the Nintendo DS version was higher than expected. The game was hard to find in stores shortly after its release. The third printing sold out in around a week. As of February 2007, 100,000 copies had been shipped in North America, which Capcom's vice president of marketing found surprising. Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Trilogy was the 139th best-selling game of the year in Japan in 2014, with 46,819 copies sold. 
The PC version of the collection was among the best-selling new releases of the month on Steam. After the release of the game, sequels, spin-offs, and a crossover have been made. The second and third games in the series, Justice for All and Trials and Tribulations, were released in 02 and 04. The fourth game, Apollo Justice Ace Attorney, which features the new protagonist, Apollo Justice, was released in 07. Dual Destinies in 13, Spirit of Justice in 16. We also had two spin-offs, as I had said, with Miles Edgeworth, which were Ace Attorney Investigations and Ace Attorney Investigation 2, 09 and 11, and two featuring Phoenix Wright's ancestor, which was Ryonusuke Narahado, which is the Great Ace Attorney Adventures and the Great Ace Attorney 2 Resolve in 1517. And then we also had a crossover with Professor Layton series, which is another kind of like more cartoonish series that kind of features more detective work. But we had Professor Layton versus Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney in 2012. So a number of those. And then as of July 27th, we have another one released right away. So we're having some more released even as we produce these episodes and have them come out. So it's, it's pretty wild to see like how these games are still coming. Even so, we've got some new protagonists. We do see some familiar faces come back, but they have shifted it up a bit. Popularity soared with the game's trilogy remake and sparked a new life on YouTube and social media. YouTuber Legal Eagle, a well-known creator and lawyer who reacts to games and pop culture to see how well they follow legal proceedings and the law, created a react video to the first game and broke down everything wrong and right about it in terms of US law, Pretty cheekily, because again, the game is a caricature of law, and it's meant to be like a mystery novel, so he had some fun with it. And I've seen a few of his other videos as well, and he definitely picks the ones that he knows. These are just going to be totally absurd. Yeah. I believe he's done some stuff for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia as well. Mm -hmm. All the things that (laughs) that don't make sense. I mean, yeah, he points it out, but I also think we, a lot of us kind of already know, like, no, this is not how it would work. Yeah, and it's all in jest. I mean, that's what he does. Like, he does some serious ones I've seen, but for the most part, it's to have fun with it and just to have a topic to talk about, being, like, the one lawyer who does that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I will say BuzzFeed did try and steal his thunder. They started doing their own with a lawyer mm. and doing these things. Kind of weird. But anyway, on Twitter, the at AceCourtBot allows other users to transform Twitter threads into courtroom cases between Phoenix and Miles. So you guys have probably seen these memes around where it takes the in-game cutscenes and kind of does it where it's like, objection, finger wag, and like states the two sides and goes back and forth between Miles and Phoenix. They've also done that with Reddit threads, which have turned court arguments as well, such as the gym bros arguing how many days are in a week. If they're trying to work out, you know, this many days in a week, trying to argue if there's eight or seven. And it's just ridiculous. It goes back and forth. And it's just such a fun, weird cultural phenomenon that has spawned from that. And that people have just gotten so good at creating things, they just made a bot that would just rearrange it. People go on Twitter and say some really crazy, dumb things. So it's always funny. And it's a nice breakup, a nice comic relief when I see the Ace Court bot pop in there. When someone has just said something absolutely ridiculous, it's perfect. Yep. And so to wrap us up, Phoenix Wright has been credited with helping to popularize visual novels in the Western world. Vice Magazine credits Phoenix Wright with popularizing the visual novel mystery format and notes that its success anticipated the resurgence of point-and-click adventure games, as well as the international success of Japanese visual novels. According to Danganronpa director Kazutaka Kodaka, 
Phoenix Wright's success in North America was due to how it distinguished itself from most visual novels with its gameplay mechanics, which Doug and Ranpa later built upon and helped it also find success in North America. So, you know, we're seeing this game that had just been kind of a whim and like, I wanted to always make a mystery game. Okay, you're off Resident Evil, do this thing. It's wild how much stuff has come out of Capcom. So why just am excited to see where the series goes? Again, it's a series of mine that I actually really enjoyed. It's fun. And that is our coverage of Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney. As always, Derek, start it off. Why did we choose this game? What do you think of it? So this week, uh, the Great Ace Attorney Chronicles is releasing. I, I think it's actually releasing on the day that we record this episode, which, I mean, is a perfect time to look at a game now, I feel like going on to the Switch, it's going to be really getting a lot more attention that maybe it didn't get in the past. I think Switch games in general are getting a lot more attention than, let's say, DS games did. Or mm-hmm. even, I, I, I'd say that Wii games probably got a, a decent amount of attention. There were so many of them everywhere. But it'll be good to see this, you know, kind of pop up as a, a unique Switch game again. And it's just a good time to review. I personally really like L.A. Noir. I had a lot of fun with that game. And you can see the parallels between Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, and obviously what it led to for games in that genre. It's interesting to be like the, the defense attorney, I think, rather than in a lot of video games you're usually maybe the one on the attack a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Maybe you, like in L.A. Noir, you are the detective. You are trying to figure everything out so that you can convict somebody, not so you can defend them. You're trying to prove them guilty. And this one is interesting because you're kind of playing both sides. Not only am I having to defend someone, I'm also having to figure out and prove why it wasn't this person and was actually someone else at the same time. So you kind of get like a really neat balance within these games. And I find that concept to be incredibly interesting. I think it's detailed enough to where everything makes sense. You don't have to deal with this 3D world and spend a ton of time running around like you did in L.A. Noir necessarily, because you could just pick different locations, but still enough detail to be able to observe particular things about other objects. And so there's enough there to where you do have to pay a little bit close attention to what you're doing to make sure that those details don't hurt you later if you don't have them. And it reminds me a lot of like mystery books that I read when I was a kid, where if you didn't pay attention in one scene that there was like a paperclip sitting on a desk, and that's what ultimately leads to you figuring out in the end, hey, this person did it, and here's how we know, and you get the big reveal after you finish the chapters, try and make the guess. It's cool to have that in a more interactive format. Obviously, with books, it, it kind of works that way. You can go back and double-check yourself, but sure. having it all happen and having to react in real time and those kind of things, I think that's a really interesting, cool concept. And I'm excited to see what people have to say about the Grace Attorney Chronicles. I've already seen some decent things. I think Metacritic has a review out for it. It has a score of 88 right now, which is cool. That's one of the better-reviewed Switch games to come out in 2021, and so I'm excited to see where this series goes. And if you had to, I mean, you can refrain because your your rating system's ridiculous. If you had to give it a rating, would you give it a rating today, or would you hold off? I think I'm going to give this one a uh, a seven out of ten. Mm-hmm. I, I think some of the 
the humor is is interesting. Some of those names, fun game. Um, seems really cool. Obviously, launched a series yep. of games, and I think that's really important. And for the influence alone, I think that it's worth at least that. I think the length of story is interesting. Having it wrap up within those four episodes, I know there are different cases, and you're you're doing a lot within those episodes. I think having it round out at five would have been really cool too. I know they did that for the DS version. Yeah, I, I think I I feel safe sitting at a seven. All right, all right. Well, let's jump over here. Let's give you a true rating. You know why do we choose this? I mean, this again, as Derek had stated, launched what no one thought. I think would be like a series. You know, it was a spin-off game, very much like Devil May Cry was supposed to be, where it was kind of just Capcom was like, I don't know, work on a different project. We'll see if it sells, blah, blah, blah. It did, same thing with Devil May Cry. And it created these two really fantastic series that had nothing to do with Resident Evil. So it's just crazy how those things changed and how those minds melded to make their own, you know, projects. It reminds me a lot of uh, with Tim Schafer and a lot of the stuff that he's done with Double Fine. And just these pet projects within Psychonauts, within Brutal Legend, and all these other ones that he just really wanted to create and love. And that's kind of how I, how I see it here. And again, you're getting probably four to five hours easily out of each chapter. It's so satisfying when you get the evidence right. And it's so crushing when you're like, what did I miss? What, why was that wrong? That to me connects. Like that's how it should be. So it's just really fun to get that. The fifth chapter, I will say, even though it felt like a tag along, adding in those other elements of being able to really look at the evidence and see things, doing the forensic, added a lot more than just trying to surmise that this photo you have is going to be the evidence, even though it might not tie in a little bit. So it does lose some marks there for me. But if I had to give it a rating, I would give it, um, obviously, start off with the name Butts. Mwah, beautiful thing. Butt of the joke. Funny name. Butts, always funny. So you got to start off right there. Multiply in the times that I was a damn genius. I got the evidence right and I knew it. Perfected that chapter. Subtract out and strike from the record the times I failed um, because that never happened. Obviously, if you look at the record now, judge, uh, it is stricken. So it never happened. Um, and then multiply that by. Um, a heartwarming dinner at the end once you get to the end of the game and you have a dinner it'll be great out of objection you're Thank you, you were on a roll so i i didn't want to interrupt you did i just hear you chef kiss larry butts i did wow gotta, gotta kiss that's, the butt that's something he's a butt kisser you heard it. You heard it here first. You heard it here, baby. That's what we got to do. Anyway, that is my rating. The official rating, Chef Kiss and all. That's what you got to have with that. That is Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, baby. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall with assistance from Evan Barr. The intro and outro music for this episode was composed and recorded by Evan Barr. Oh, lovely people. That guy did all the research in this one. Guy, he's gorgeous. Yeah, man. It's wild. Al, this is a full Alex research episode. I, I got to do Skyward. You got to do Ace Attorney. Yeah, so Derek and, and I are uh, definitely... It's great. It's awesome. We're adding in more a lot of our own flair and some of the games we want to cover, plus just like childhood favorites or just stuff we're passionate about. It just helps us get to the mind of you folks out there. What do you like about it? 
<laughs> anyway, let's jump over. Let's talk about the people who support us. Also beautiful people out there as our patrons. As always, if you haven't checked it out, we're adding some new stuff coming this week. Got new merch on Patreon. We got a new Minecraft server on Patreon. We just got a bunch of stuff for you. So you can check that over at patreon.com slash finish the fight. If you want to check us out, please do that. We're going to thank those patrons today. Starting with Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Trace, Alex Harper, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Climbing Spork, Mr.1898, also known as Mr. Evan, the gosh dang good guy himself, William Kroll, Mr. Toot, wrapping it up. So thank you guys so much for the support. As always, check us out. If you have any things you want to see, hear from us, there's a great place. And then uh, Derek's got some more places for you to check us out. If you haven't yet, follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. Twitter is Derek now. Derek Twitter. Things are going to get real weird and yeah, exciting. Yeah, yeah. If, you want, if you want some real good tweets and not Grandpa Alex just roboting tweeting, Derek's the way to go. So that's at FTF Gamecast. You can find us Finish the Fight podcast on Instagram. Also, you can join our Discord. It's free to join. Always having fun. Memeing it up. Sometimes it gets a little out of hand with the memeing. I'm here for it. Come hang out with us. Yeah, it is, it is now Derek Daddy over there, so just so you all know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're on sporadically, but check us over at twitch.tv slash sourman70, S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0, and check Derek out at twitch.tv slash the Baker Man 24-7. That is the Baker as in making some bread, baby. Man as in, hey, man, what's up? And then 24-7 as in 7-Eleven. That's right. Crushing it. You can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. If you haven't yet, drop us a review. We love hearing from you guys. The feedback helps us out a lot. Um, yeah. And a little touch this last wrap up. If you guys have any recommendations, any games you want to hear from, or any interesting stories or connections, send them our way. Like We'll definitely credit you within the episodes of anything that you guys help us out with because. What you want to hear is what we want to research. So let us know. As always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. <laughs>